Welcome to Put Your Heart Into It, the HBC podcast centered around educating providers and staff about common clinical scenarios so that we can better treat our patients. Podcasts on this account are meant for educational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical diagnoses or advice. If you have any clinical symptoms or medical questions, please consult a licensed healthcare provider. Let's get started on this month's podcast. Welcome, everyone. We will be having the third of three parts of a podcast about atrial fibrillation with Dr. Carlos Cali Muller, who is the electrophysiologist. The first part, which is available on the podcast website, is on basics of atrial fibrillation and approach. The second is on antiarrhythmic therapy. And then, you know, that's stuff that really any of the cardiologists can do, and even the APPs are able to do. And the third part is actually what he does specifically, which is procedures for atrial fibrillation. We'll go through four different things from the most basic to the most advanced, one being a loop recorder, which even a lot of non-EPs can do, the second being a permanent pacemaker, the third being the uh, watchman or similar type of left atrial appendage closure, and the fourth type being uh, ablation procedures. So, uh, Carlos, so maybe tell us a little bit about loop recorders when and when they can be placed. Yes, uh, absolutely. Thank you, uh, Michael, for the invitation again. So, yeah, loop recorders is a device, it's a tiny device, which I tell patients kind of the size of a little finger and flat as a coin that we can essentially inject under the skin under local anesthesia without the use of sedation and we do that procedure actually at our coming office uh, frequently. Uh, the loop recorder is used for different purposes. The nice thing about it is that patients don't, it doesn't really bother the presence of it compared to long-term monitors, like 30-day monitors, which is a bulky uh, system that they have attached to the chest. The loop recorder you inject under the skin and then the patient really doesn't feel it anymore. The nice thing about it is it monitors the heart 24-7 for up to three years of battery life with the newer devices. And once you find what you're looking for, in this case, for example, atrial fibrillation, you can always remove it. And the removal is a very simple procedure, just like the implant. We use loop recorders, I would say, mainly for two reasons. One of them, probably the biggest indication, is in patients with cryptogenic stroke. So neurologists refer patients to us all the time in those uh, patients who had a stroke and we don't have a good explanation for it. We do the tests in the carotid arteries. We do a test on the heart looking for clots and we don't find any significant pathology. And then we call it cryptogenic, meaning we don't know the origin of it. And that's a reason to implant a loop recorder. And the loop recorder has a nice algorithm that detects atrial fibrillation and will tell us if there is any presence of it. And the idea of it is if we find it in a patient that had a stroke, then we can start them on anticoagulation, like we have discussed in the past. Another idea, of the, another way to use the loop recorders is in those patients that have an arrhythmia and keep having palpitations and we don't really find anything on the long-term monitors we give them for seven days, for 30 days, and then they claim they continue to have them. So then we also offer loop recorders for long-term monitor of rhythm problems. And lastly, 
I would say another way in which I use loop recorders is in those patients that have no atrial fibrillation and have undergone an ablation procedure that seems to be successful. And once they've had no atrial fibrillation, say for more than a year, and they don't want to be on anticoagulation long-term because they don't feel the need as they don't have an atrial fibrillation. Although we always tell them that the need of atrial fibrillation, irrespective of the ablation, is based on the risk factors. But as we know, anticoagulations can be costly and they have their own risk of bleeding, which can be significant sometimes. I offer them after a year to give them a loop recorder and the day of the loop recorder implant, I tell them to come off anticoagulation since we'll be monitoring their heart 24-7 and knowing if they have any AFib, then they would have to go back uh, on blood thinners. Yeah, I think loop is useful. The battery life is typically about three years. Um, several companies make them. I think the pacemaker nurses do a great job keeping an eye on the patients. And um, I think that when we do get cryptogenic strokes, I found that this atrial fibrillation, atrial fibrillation is a, ends up being a lot more common etiology when we go through the workup than a PFO. And, um, and the data for PFO closure in older folks is not that good, whereas the data for anticoagulation for stroke prevention in AFib is, is uh, very strong. Um, the second procedure is pacemakers. Yeah, so pacemakers, there's, I would say, different ways to, to use a, a pacemakers in patients that have atrial fibrillation. The main indication, I would say, is in those patients that have what is called tachycardia, bradycardia syndrome. A lot of patients that have had atrial fibrillation for a long time, I explain to them that their own natural pacemaker starts to malfunction. So, meaning that when they are in atrial fibrillation, their heart goes fast, but when they come out of it, though, their heart pauses, and when it, the sinus rhythm kicks back in, it's slow. So they have episodes of lightheadedness, they feel like they're about to pass out, and some people actually indeed pass out, and that's an indication, a class one indication, to proceed with a dual chamber pacemaker implantation. And uh, taking it a little bit farther, in those patients that have persistent atrial fibrillation that you've tried multiple therapies on them, and they continue to have atrial fibrillation, and they have a pacemaker, uh, with, there is also a procedure offered that is called an AV node ablation. When what I do is I go in with one catheter through the right femoral vein into the heart, and I burn the cable, the natural cable that connects the upper chambers to the lower chambers of the heart, that way, when you do that, there is no way back, meaning that the heart is essentially disconnected. So the pacemaker is what tells the heart how fast to go. So we set an initial rate of, say, 80, and slowly we bring that down to 60. And the pacemaker also has a nice sensor on them that, based on the patient's activity, the rate of it also picks up with the motion of them. So that's also an option for patients who already have a pacemaker, and they happen to have persistent atrial fibrillation. <clears throat> yeah, those are, we'll talk about atrial fibrillation ablation in a couple of seconds, but, you know, many people, um, you know, it's not a successful procedure. They have a lot of underlying medical problems, you know, dialysis, uh, you know, uh, they have uh, lung disease, especially on oxygen. Uh, you know, it's, it's even in the most skilled hands, uh, which is sitting next to me here, it's not always 100% successful. 
And when you know this ahead of time, yeah, maybe sometimes a permanent pacemaker, get that up and running, make sure it's implanted and not dislodged, and then come in approximately a month or so for an AV nodal ablation. Much better tolerated than ablation, which they may have to keep going back for a procedure and you're risking complications. Yeah, I totally agree with that, yes. I always explain, that, explain to patients that though the AV node ablation, they become pacemaker dependent though, so that's kind of like a, a good last resort to have available in those who are extremely symptomatic during atrial fibrillation and all other therapies have really failed to control their rhythm. Mm -hmm. Uh, something that's come out, um, it's, you know, there always there's been left atrial appendage closure. So, uh, you know, just as a brief bit of background, the majority of the blood clots that embolize from atrial fibrillation is from the left atrial appendage. And, you know, if, if you remove this, uh, your stroke risk and embolization risk is way lower. Uh, the surgeons can do this oftentimes when they do open heart surgery, I don't think very rarely would we send somebody just for that, but if they're getting another type of surgery, whether it be a valve or bypass, um, and they have a history of atrial fibrillation, they, you really should make sure, and the surgeons are really good about doing this. Uh, and then now there's something called the watchman. Yes, so left atrial appendage closure devices are now FDA approved and commercially available for patients who qualify for them. So the first uh, thing to know is that for a patient to qualify for the most common now left atrial appendage occluder device, which is the Watchman device, they have to have a CHATS VASC of at least three or more. That makes them a candidate for a Watchman device, and you have to have a reason why to implant it, uh, which for example can be issues with bleeding, which is the most common thing, GI bleeds or having a history of an intracranial bleed in the past that was spontaneous, or honestly, just compliance and the patient's inability to take anticoagulation for reasons like cost. And we see that often that cost is a common problem for patients and they cannot afford anticoagulation uh, long-term and, uh, and they are good candidates for a Watchman device. So the Watchman device now has been a, around for, for a few years uh, it's, a, I would say, a low-risk procedure with the newer devices we have, which is the Watchman FLX device. And, uh, and the procedure takes about an hour to be completed. Uh, I personally perform a TEE test beforehand to measure the left atrial appendage uh, to make sure that the size of the left atrial appendage will be able to fit a Watchman device because there is five different sizes of the Watchman. So, but again, once the watchman once the watchman is in, patients stay on anticoagulation for a total of six weeks, and then I perform a transesophageal echocardiogram, and making sure that the watchman is well seated, there is no leaks associated to it, and of course no clots, and then they can come off anticoagulation to take aspirin with Plavix for a total of six months from implant, and after that time I continue them with the aspirin only. In those patients who have an absolute contraindication for anticoagulation, like a prey, the most common one being a prior uh, significant intracranial bleed that was spontaneous, I do proceed with the watchman with Careful, and, uh, and I give them aspirin and Plavix from the get-go, avoiding the anticoagulation, and they take that for a total of six months. 
As Dr. Bud mentioned, there is options for the Watchman now. There is a newer device called an amulet device that is a, kind of a similar procedure as the Watchman, although a little bit of a different technology. And, uh, and that's now also commercially available as an option for patients. And of course, as he had mentioned too, there is the surgical option, which has been around for a long time, which has gotten better over time, which is the surgical clip, which uh, with now surgeons are quite proficient in doing that. And I think that's also kind of a similar idea as the Watchman with similar, with similar results as well. So the procedure I think that's um, really, I think evolved in the last 10 to 15 years has been atrial fibrillation ablation. I think the, um, you know, there was a big trial maybe almost 15 years ago, a firm trial that said, you know, rate control is fine for um, anti, you know, for atrial fibrillation. You don't have to try to get them back in a regular rhythm. We know that, you know, cardioversion and uh, antirhythmic therapy is, you know, partially effective. But then I think that was before ablation has really evolved. I think it's been one of the most exciting things in cardiology in the last, uh, you know, 10 years. And um, we can talk about, you know, eight, the ablation. There's, I think, two different, there's thermal cooling and there's heating and there's also something called convergent. So we could talk about those things. Yeah, so the atrial fibrillation ablation has been around also for years. As you mentioned, that technology has evolved significantly. Uh, being in the past a six-hour long procedure, now it's an hour to two-hour long procedure nowadays, uh, depending on how extensive the ablation you, you have to perform. And uh, <clears throat> again, the procedure also with tools we have now for transeptal access and uh, advances also with things as simple as anesthesia to make the procedure safer. So as Mehul explained, there is, uh, I would say, two different types of uh, ablation technology. Uh, one of them is... Uh, cooling, which is cryoablation, in which you freeze the, uh, mainly the pulmonary veins that come from the lungs into the heart, which is where most of the AFib triggers happen. Isolating those veins proves to be effective for controlling atrial fibrillation. Again, the procedure is not 100% successful, as I will explain, but it's a definitely a much better choice or a much more successful option than antiarrhythmics. And then there is the thermal or radio frequency ablation, which is essentially burning. And that's also a different technology, how you can ablate atrial fibrillation. And now there is a third technology coming that is still not commercially available, but it shows that it's, it's showing to be promising, which is called a PFA, pulse field ablation, that uses very different technology, uh, delivering like very short, high energy shocks to ablate tissue in a safer manner. Uh, avoiding damage of collateral structures. Uh, so the main stem of an ablation procedure, uh, and I explained that to patients, is I believe the ablation is more successful the earlier you catch the atrial fibrillation. In those patients that have had atrial fibrillation for many years and in which the AFib has become persistent and you have to do several cardioversions to get them back to rhythm, and they keep going back into AFib, and the left atrium is already very enlarged. In those patients, uh, I have to be honest with them and tell them that the chance of success of the ablation is not great. And I believe the earliest to catch the AFib, meaning when the AFib is still paroxysmal, is still coming and going, and the left atrium hasn't suffered from much changes, and is still relatively small, 
In those patients, this is where the atrial fibrillation ablation is most successful. And I tell them the chance of success of the atrial fibrillation in those patients, when we catch them early enough, can be up to 80%. <clears throat> While in those in which it's persistent, it kind of goes down to maybe 60%. So it's not that great. Uh, the type of ablation I typically perform for patients with proximal atrial fibrillation is called cryoablation. I like uh, cryoablating the veins. I find those lesions to be very durable when performed uh, efficiently. Uh, sometimes <clears throat> you have to complement the ablation with radiofrequency ablation of, say, atrial flutters that can coexist sometimes with atrial fibrillation. And, uh, and as I said, the procedure is now safe and is effective. Dr. Bad mentioned about a convergent ablation procedure. So that's a hybrid ablation in which an electrophysiologist like myself does an endovascular ablation with catheters, either cryo or radiofrequency, and then a surgeon makes a small window under the sternum, kind of on the lower chest, and surgically gets behind the heart. And nowadays what they do is they freeze the back wall of the heart consistently to isolate the posterior wall. The posterior wall of the left atrium is a big trigger for atrial fibrillation in those patients, especially with more persistent atrial fibrillation. And the, the good thing about the conversion is that a surgeon is able to perform that part of the procedure safely because he kind of pulls the atrium forward, moving it far away from the esophagus. And the ganglionic plexi behind the heart. The problem with ablating the posterior wall endovascularly like we do is that there is a chance of collateral damage, damage, uh, mainly on the esophagus, creating a complication that is called a, an atrioesophageal fistula, which can have a very high mortality. So that's why we stay away from ablating on the posterior wall. And the incidence of such a complication is extremely low. But with the convergent hybrid ablation procedure, the surgeon can safely and effectively ablate the back wall without causing such a lesion. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a great overview of the procedures. Uh, if you have any questions, just let us know. I think we're both available. And um, I think this, you're going to see more and more people with atrial fibrillation. So that's why we had to sort of split this into three parts. And um, we, you know, that's for many reasons. We're going to see that more people, the population is aging, people are living longer, people want a higher quality of life at an older age, uh, and also more detection. Um, I at least get one or two patients a week that found atrial fibrillation on an uh, Apple Watch. So thank you very much, Carlos, and um, look forward to our next podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another cardiology-focused episode.